0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading
1: experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID 19 crisis and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Kreese. With the Omicron variant still upon us and the possibility of more variants on the horizon, there appears to be no break in sight for those entrusted with the challenge of providing high quality care for patients and high quality education for the next generation of clinicians all at the same time in the midst of a pandemic. One of those leaders, Dr. Omar Latif, is with us today. As president and CEO of Rush University Medical Center since 2019, he's received national attention for his management during the pandemic, including being named one of the 50 most influential clinical executives by Modern Healthcare Magazine. He's published extensively in the field of healthcare quality and is a leading national figure in the effort to improve healthcare delivery. Dr. Latif, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start first with just learning more about you and what first got you interested in the field of medicine.
0: Oh, I've always been interested in medicine. Uh, I went to college. My background is in theology, and um, I was also pre-med and then uh, sort of always had a passion for trying to make a difference or trying to make an impact. And so every kid sort of dreams about doing something of value or making an impact. And I've always thought if you can make a living doing something good, then what a great way to live.
1: And what was it about pulmonology that
0: uh, drew you? I had a mentor when I was in my residency program in internal medicine, who was a pulmonary and critical care physician. So the ICU is sort of where all of medicine comes to live on steroids. It's really an aggressive place to, to practice medicine. And you get to practice all of the physiology and see all the science that you've spent so many years learning, come together, working with people. So, you know, I watched a mentor... Dr. Geron, who just knew everything and could just walk into a room and know how to take care of people, and we kind of wanted to follow in those footsteps.
1: And did you at that point in your career also contemplate a leadership track for yourself and academic medicine?
0: Uh, it's so interesting. No, not really. I think my journey in academia, more in administrative leadership, came out of opportunity. It, it's hard to connect the dots going forward, but I think when I look back, they all make sense. Like even Studying theology helped me be a better ICU doctor and have end-of-life family discussions by understanding more about the culture and environment somebody was coming from, and then practicing medicine intimately uh, in a hospital helped me understand the inner workings of a hospital. And then rather than at times be frustrated with some of the inability to make changes, I wanted to be a part of that change, and that's how I got interested in administration. It came out of a selfish desire to try to make life easier and improve care for other people. And then when you learned that there was an audience to helpful suggestions to drive change, then I started to find one role or another role, or another role, and started to really enjoy the ability to try to improve healthcare in any small way that I could.
1: That's a great path that you followed there. So we're going to spend most of our time getting your perspective as a hospital leader during COVID. But as I noted, you happen to specialize in pulmonary and critical care medicine. So I've got to ask you about your, your clinical view of this as well. What do you think are the big takeaways for people with your specialties on covid and the disease it causes what is standing out generally about this
0: i think that you know when you go into critical care medicine so the the disease that covid caused that caused the highest mortality was something called ards or acute respiratory distress syndrome and what happened was you would get an infection and then your body would fight that infection and part of the inflammation that your body would fight would sit in your lungs, and it would fill up your lungs with so many inflammatory cells. Your lungs, instead of being nice, open balloons, became balloons that were filled with fluid and water and and all this other material, and you couldn't breathe, and that syndrome is called ARDS. For years, we've learned how to treat this, but we never treated it with the same volumes of patients coming together at the same time. So while we understood how to treat ARDS, we didn't have the facilities and the resources to treat hundreds and hundreds of people at the same time with it what we learned was how labile our healthcare field is how not agile we are in this country and how we needed to be able to bend sooner than we were able to bend without breaking and there were areas where we were overwhelming the healthcare infrastructure and i think that the takeaway wasn't our lack of knowledge and how to care for COVID patients it was related to the lack of resources early on in the pandemic. So the the primary takeaways are that COVID is a virus that caused a reaction in your body that could kill you. You could take a vaccine that would prevent that reaction from happening. Data and science clearly support that. We are the only country in the world that has done such a phenomenal job. Our government, last administration, this administration, of doing a phenomenal job of developing it and making it available. So we have enough per capita for this country to move past this. So the key takeaways are get a vaccine. We have great therapies that we know how to use, but there's nothing better than preventing someone from being ill. And the painful part of it is seeing patients that are sick that didn't have to be sick.
1: Yeah, that's gotta be hard. So talk a little bit about Rush University Medical Center for those in the audience who aren't really familiar about it and and the impact on your infrastructure there and how you were able to mobilize in response.
0: Sure. So Rush University Medical Center is a 700-bed hospital in the near west side of Chicago. We have a, a community-based mission. We believe in improving the health of our community. And one of our strategic plans is not only to be the best patient care, patient experience hospital in the country, but it's also to be that hospital for our community. We've decided as part of our strategic plan, pre-COVID, we know that in Chicago there's a, what we call as a death gap. Dr. David Ansel wrote a book at of Rush University Medical Center where he showed that if you're on the Gold Coast, you'll live 18 years longer than if you're five subway stops west and, and you know, just past where Rush University Medical Center is. I tell you that because we made a strategic plan that says not only are we going to have a great cancer center, orthopedics, neuro program, and whatnot, we're also going to decrease that gap by 50%. And so if there's an 18-year gap by 2030, we're going to make that nine years. We don't have a plan on how to do that. Initially, we just had a goal or a vision on how to do that. And We said, we'll populate the plan later. This is pre-pandemic. So we have a mission-based institution that was rated number one in the country in quality by the Visi and Safety and Accountability Survey. We're an honorable hospital by the U.S. News and World Report. But you can do all those things and still not serve your community the way your community needs to be served. That's what the pandemic taught us. The pandemic taught us that you can be sick and have a hospital near you and just not have access to the facilities of that hospital. So that's where that other mission of Rush University Medical Center comes into place. We're a community-based organization that wants to improve the health of our neighborhood. We wanna be there for our city and for our state. And so what we did in the end was, we were able to take our mission and our goal and apply it to our COVID response. And so any hospital knew how to take care of COVID patients. You just had to put the resources together. We had the culture and the desire already as an organization set up to take care of people in our community. And it just so happened during the pandemic that it was the, this community around us that had a three times higher mortality from COVID than other communities. So if you were black or brown in America, you had a three times higher mortality. So we had a mantra that said we were built for this. We opened our doors and said, this is gonna be our defining moment as a healthcare system, where we're gonna take patients that were sick, that couldn't get the help they can get from other places and bring them into this hospital. And we took hundreds and hundreds of transfers into the healthcare facility, which caused a tremendous challenge and burden to our healthcare workers, but provided a tremendous service and access. And when it was said and done, the outcomes at Rush were no different based on what color you were or where you were from, The reality was if you provided the same high-level care, you'd get the same high-level outcomes. And ours were amongst the top outcomes in the country. So it's a long-winded answer. 700-bed hospital near West Side of Chicago, mission-driven for our community that stood up for a pandemic at a level that was unprecedented.
1: So what does that look like on the ground? I mean, what are the kind of programs and concrete steps that you guys are taking that people in the audience might learn from?
0: So... There's so many different programs that are run out of rush, but we learned early that fixing hypertension is critically important, but making sure people have access to the food that leads to high blood pressure earlier on is actually more important. And making sure that people have weight reduction programs or smoking cessation programs can do more than high level heart-lung bypass machines that you can put people on overnight. So we built community-based programs by working within our community and partnering with people throughout Chicagoland and other hospitals that have shared goals. And we've created programs to go into the community, offer tutoring, offer food substance program, offer jobs programs. We believe that in doing that, you'll improve the health of your community just the same way you'll improve the health of your community by having a great neurosurgical department.
1: Is it hard for the community perhaps to understand why a hospital is getting involved with helping people with diet and with transportation issues and all these other things?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that the reality is if you look at a hospital, not just as a place that provides acute care, but if you look at a hospital as a large employer and a part of the community, then you could leverage your weight as a large employer to make changes in your community. For example, you have jobs, you hire people from your zip code, you have a dining hall, you try to bring in the services for that dining hall from your local community so that that money and resources stay in your neighborhood. Our institution built programs around that alone. We try by policy to do as much as we possibly can to anchor our roots into our community. And so when we do that, you start to see the change. It's a different way of thinking. It's not necessarily hard. It's a different way of thinking because most hospitals will sit back and say, all right, our job is to get the best outcome for pneumonia. Our job is to get the best outcome for heart failure. What well, we look at our job is we're going to improve the life expectancy of this zip code. We're going to improve it of the broader area. and We're going to take on social determinants of health.
1: Yeah, and that broadening of mission for hospitals has not been going on all that long. I mean, really since uh, Obamacare is when a lot of this thinking started, but it's been slow to take root and probably even more difficult in your kind of community where they're just the demands are so high and the resources are not what they need to be.
0: I think that's a true statement for all of the hospitals in America. I think dealing with the reality that racism is a public health crisis is one that has not been uniformly adopted. And healthcare institutions that understand the impact of social determinants of health build programs to take those on directly and those are the institutions that will change the trajectory of the health of their community i think if you ignore those realities and just assume that everybody has the same access to care the same access to food the same housing scenarios then you're going to continue to have different outcomes in different groups in this country and i think at some point you have to just look at the science and divorce yourself from the politics or the emotion of it and when you look at the science and say How can the same disease affect one color differently than another if it's not genetic? And so for us as an organization, we've embraced that and built programs around it. However, building a program to improve food sustenance in your community doesn't increase your healthcare system's bottom line. And we were getting at that a little bit. So you have to be mission-driven in this space and then count on other forces to impact in a positive way. You have to make your money somewhere else because you're not going to make it doing this, but there's an opportunity to do this.
1: Yeah, long term, it may help with reducing costs, but the payoff is long term.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting because in life, I feel like you always know what the right thing to do is. It's just hard. Like if you're in a road and there's a why in the road, you always know what the right path is, but it just may be more challenging to take. How could it not be the right path to help someone find a job? to hire a local to help infuse money into your local neighborhood. But if it's cheaper to hire a, a national service to do the work that you're going to get locally, there's a conflict, right, on how do I increase the hospital bottom line so I can continue to provide high-level care.
1: No margin, no mission, right, as they used to say. So I'm curious about what it's like to be a hospital leader during what is obviously an incredibly challenging time because docs and nurses are not immune to the fears and stresses that everybody else is experiencing with COVID, but they've still got to show up every day and do this really difficult job. So I'm curious what your approach has been to navigating through all of that and keeping your people and your organization on track.
0: I don't think there's been a bigger challenge in healthcare than the ones we're experiencing right now for the exact question you had. If you think about what happened during the pandemic and, and replay it, like, you would take a step back and say, we just asked healthcare people in this country to work longer, to work harder, and to take risk, to risk their own lives. We did, we've asked our nurses to stay here for two extra shifts because other nurses got sick. And then we told them, go home. They didn't know much about the disease when the pandemic first started. They would change their clothes into their garage, walk into their house basically naked, not hug their children, take a shower, come down, exhausted only to do this over again and when it was said and done what did we do the financial cost in this country was so great hospitals lost money cut salaries and we cut benefits so we took the heroes that stood up and saved lives and then we cut their benefits we made them whole as a healthcare institution but there are hospitals that didn't have the resources that other hospitals had so if you were a wealthy hospital you could withstand this but if you were a safety net hospital you did incredible work for your community like many of the hospitals in chicago and had no safety net to capture you and that's what's happened and you will see hospitals continue to go out of business but what it's done was for the very heroes that stood up and fought this the adrenaline that was there that kept you going for the first surge that we're in this together let's go fight this like we're in this together let's fight this then you know that's gone and the reason i would say that is that the adrenaline of let's keep people motivated let's keep people in that was easier when the whole neighborhood was putting signs up that says "We're in this with you." Let's go work through this. We're in this with you. Let's go work through this. Now we're at a point where that adrenaline's gone away, and instead there are signs that say, "You know, we support the science," or there's the impression that COVID's not even real. So it's like society changed dramatically from the beginning when we were all in this together. Where at eight o'clock people were banging their pots and pans for the healthcare workers. To they're no longer doing that because people are tired of it. And it's nobody's fault. It's a reality. People go into healthcare to make a difference. People dream about making an impact. The people that worked here in our organization and everywhere in this country saved countless lives. The reward was that there was less money in the system, more challenge in the system, and a giant labor crisis. So the people that are here are doing extra work.
1: So, how do you deal with these exhausted? folks, you know, that still have to uh, not only do their job, but go above and beyond. I wish
0: I had a better answer than you tell them the truth. It's transparent. You have to be in it with them. You share the same challenges with everybody else. And you have to do everything you possibly can to be upfront, honest, and share the resources that you need. So people, the only thing that you can do is circle back to the mission. We're doing this. This is the right thing. We are going to recover from this eventually we'll have enough people to do this job eventually this pandemic will go away but the only way to do this is to keep building the environment and the right culture where people are willing to make those sacrifices but i will tell you in this country and in this world nurses doctors healthcare workers have been heroes in this pandemic and many of them don't feel like it right now
1: right So I want to shift a little bit to talking about maybe the more lasting impacts of uh, COVID. There's been all this talk about the innovation that it's brought and the vaccines were miraculous. And the shift to telemedicine, you know, is a major leap forward in many people's view. And there's a lot of disruption going on, a lot of companies bringing new delivery models and so forth. But I'm wondering about how this has changed the culture of innovation at hospitals and institutions? Because as you know, the reputation was these are big old battleships that move very slowly. They had to move very quickly. They made amazing changes. Do you think that realization that they can move faster than they thought they could is going to last and be a positive going forward?
0: The battleship analogy is understated. Healthcare is like taking a battleship, putting it on a lake, and asking it to turn around. (laughs) The people that run healthcare in this country, many of them have been the same people for like four decades. And the model of thinking and how we function as a healthcare system has been built around, I'm gonna raise my revenue, I'm gonna cut some expenses, I'm gonna do these procedures and those procedures. And healthcare is not like other businesses where innovation is what you needed to do to excel. And so the reality is we were slow in healthcare to adopt any type of change. It was different from what we were doing. And the reality is necessity of the times of not having resources forced us to make changes. So I'll give you an example. If we want to close or open beds in a single hospital, in a single city, in a single state, in a single country, it takes months of paperwork and requests. All of a sudden, we had people lining up outside the emergency room that needed a hospital bed, so we stuck them in hallways, and we got emergency authorizations to make units. Well, it turned out those units worked. It turned out that we somehow figured out how to do it across the entire country. Safety net hospitals with very limited resources did a phenomenal job of setting up makeshift units and mass units that provided care that was life-saving. Then we were able to convert more than half our visits in like a week to a televisit. We were told for years we can't do it, there's safety concerns, or security concerns, but something happened over a week. Now there's definitely people in the technology world that could do this and understood how to do it, but it didn't happen. It didn't happen until we needed it to happen. So now there are real challenges to keeping some of those changes. We increased the number of beds, we needed them, now we don't need those number of beds. We changed visits to televisits where people loved, people love being able to have a televisit the government made different changes that said we're going to pay for a televisit right if they don't pay for a telehealth visit then you want them to come back to the hospital because at the end of the day the hospital has to keep its lights on keep the heater running so whether or not those changes stay post-pandemic are going to be a joint conversation between society the government and healthcare. the reality is we have a labor crisis. We don't have enough providers of health care. We have to leverage technology and innovation to be able to provide care for the greatest country in the world. To do that, we have to say that the traditional model of driving the ship down a lake is not going to work anymore, and we have to adopt those changes. What I worry about is some of that passion that overtook healthcare for the last year is already starting to go away, and you're starting to see that shift back to traditional thought. We have to learn from this experience and say, there's not only going to be other pandemics, but there's going to be other healthcare challenges. How do we not leverage technology to do a better job to doing it?
1: I uh, mentioned at the beginning that you're kind of a national profile in healthcare quality. In fact, you're on the HHS National Advisory Council for Healthcare Research and Quality. So can you talk a little bit with that perspective with that hat on what's going on?
0: Yeah, I think that the most important thing when you're sick is to have good care. When you go get surgery, you want to know that you're going to recover, that you're going to not need extra blood, you're not likely to get an infection. There's all kinds of things that you can measure. The problem is that it's really hard because no two patients are exactly the same. So it's pretty easy to look at a hotel and say, this is a five star hotel, this is a one star hotel. There's differences that you can see, like a swimming pool, an indoor this, a water, whatever it is, it's going to make that difference. With hospitals, With healthcare, you can get phenomenal care anywhere and horrible care at a phenomenal place. And so it's really hard to look at quality and paint it with one brush. Unfortunately, that's what we're trying to do so hard as a society. Good hospital, bad hospital, good care, bad care. It's really different even within the same hospital, within the same area, within the same department in many ways. There's some good providers, bad providers. There's bad luck. There's all kinds of things that can happen. The challenge that we have are what are the right metrics? How do we access the right data to say this is good care, bad care? So one is actual quality. Did I go to the hospital, get the right chemotherapy and have the right outcome? The other is patient experience. You can have the best outcome, but be treated horribly and never want to go back to that institution. And when you're sick, you want someone to understand what you're going through, be able to relate to you, look you in the eyes and understand the challenge that you're in. So, the two things that I would say are healthcare quality and patient experience should be the drivers of success of an institution. In healthcare, that's not what we do. A rage in Chicago is these donut stores, right? So, I went into a store and I bought a donut and I got an Americano, a cup of coffee and a donut. It was like $9. That's pretty expensive. But if the donut's great and the coffee's great, the store is going to stay in business. In fact, people will stop and buy more and more there. You can put the store in any neighborhood. If it builds enough of a reputation, people are going to stop there on the way to work and do well. You could take a hospital and have the best outcome and the best patient experience and lose money every year and lose more money year after year. And the more that hospital tries to provide better care to people, they'll lose even more money year after year. So our business model is not the same capitalistic model that every other store has but it is sometimes it is on like Tuesday, but not on Wednesday. It is on Thursday, not on Friday. So you said, well, what about healthcare quality? And I started talking about donut stores. So I'll take us back to healthcare quality,
1: <laughs> which is of course where I expected. Yeah, to do I mean,
0: it's an obvious thing. So healthcare quality is hard to measure, critically important to measure and hard to value since it doesn't drive where patients go. So what we have to do as a nation is be transparent about what good quality is, be transparent about what good quality costs and share that in open source data so that any patient in the world knows I need to get knee surgery. I'm going to go here because they're going to do a good job. We have to be upfront and we have to be honest about the nuances. And the truth is, it's so complicated to say good versus bad that we haven't done a great job as a nation or as a world of doing that. So, I think there's some work to do under what good quality is, bad quality is. We know in general where there's good trends, but we have to value that differently in healthcare. So, that becomes a driver of where people go.
1: That's fascinating. We only have a couple of minutes left, and we always like to end by asking our guests to provide some advice. As I mentioned before, we have a lot of students and early career health professionals. What is your bottom line advice to them about meeting the challenges of this moment and more broadly approaching their career in healthcare?
0: Yeah, I think if you're not making a difference or not making an impact, then you're in so many ways professionally kind of wasting your time. And when you go into healthcare, you have the opportunity for a job to help other people, to help save people's lives. And anything that you do in healthcare makes that difference, saves people's lives and makes an impact. And if you go to sleep making an impact, that's a beautiful life. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is this pandemic, highlighted the incredible need of a country. We need working together and providing more resources for people. I would tell your listeners, young people that are gonna go in, don't be foolish like me, be innovative, be agile, and be willing to change the paradigm that's defined healthcare for the last 30, 40 years into a new paradigm that offers a care that people need when they need it, regardless of whether or not you can pay for it. If we can get there as a country, Then we'll be able to take all the amazing technology we have and apply it to everybody and healthcare i mean you can be a capitalist whatever perspective you have but healthcare is healthcare everybody deserves the right antibiotic at the right time and it takes all of us to figure out how to get there
1: well that's a great note to end on i want to thank you so much for your time dr latif and wish you all the luck in the world as you continue your work there at rush university thank you it's an honor to be here take care I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together.
0: For more information on how you can raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org/raise the line podcast.